Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. So we've got uh, a lot of value coming at you today. We're joined by a special guest, Bill Hamm. Uh, Bill is the COO of Broadwell Property Group, and he's the founder of Real Estate Raw. Uh, He is a a no-nonsense, straight-shooting, multifamily guru, to be candid. And we're also joined by, you may recognize Rob Nixon, uh, he joined us in a previous episode. He is the Deal Ninja, super valued, uh, top producer year after year, member of the team, uh, and a heck of an investor in his own right in the, the medical and commercial space. So uh, first, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Always always a treat to deliver value. And Rob, uh, thanks for taking the time to join us as well. Of course. Thank All you. right. So let's let's jump jump in, uh, Bill. I like to, to give the audience just by way of context, a little bit of background on the journey. Uh, none of us woke up and were these, you know, wonderful, savvy real estate investors. Right. So um, if you could just give the audience in, in a, a few minutes or less a little bit about the background. I know you were a pilot before and, and how you landed where you are today. Yeah, no pun intended, right? Uh, I uh, I was, uh, as you said, I was a pilot by trade, um, flying, came out of school, college, started flying airplanes, uh, went through the 9-11 debacle, kind of wound up being a flight instructor longer than I meant to. Long story, became a corporate pilot, flew for a few years. Uh, Realized I was a bad employee, so that was kind of my first aha moment was, was, uh, you know, it's not that I really hated a job. It's just I think a job hated me. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't a good employee. So um, realized the important people actually were sitting behind me, you know, and a pilot's real important from takeoff to landing. And then you're not worth much on the on the ground. So uh, that, you know, flying airplanes was fun being told when to do it, where to do it, how to do it and how long to do it. Yeah, not so much fun. So studied real estate for about a year. Uh, just rich dad, poor dad, all the crap we all read, right? Went through all that stuff. And my very first deal was a duplex. Um, I'd saved up about $10,000. Duplex was cash flowing uh, a couple hundred bucks, 300 bucks a month. And I uh, walked away from the aviation career uh, with the duplex and said, I'm going to figure this out. So, um, you know, now, now, fair carve out there. I was 28 years old at the time, you know, no debt, no, no family, no kids, none of that stuff. So I figured, ask great. Worst case scenario, I'll just go get another job if I mess this up. And I got into flipping houses and small properties. And then just over time, worked my way up into multifamily, small multifamily, 10, 20 units, larger and larger until I got up into large commercial assets. And that's what I do now is uh, syndicate, own and operate larger apartment complexes. And I'm also the COO of Broadwell Property Group, which is my partner, Tony Morgan and I. Uh, and that's what I do. So and now I got here. <laughs> Uh, a, a lot of us were bad employees, right? Um, and I wonder, as a student, were you a bad student also? That's, you know, like you're the first person to ever ask me that in that regard. And I've never thought about that. I was a terrible student. I was a, a C student. But I, 
they called it cheating. I just called it syndication at an early age. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> you have the notes. I mean, hey, come on, it's syndication, right? We get paid for that out here in school. I don't know. You know, potato, potato, right? They, they called it cheating, whatever. Horrible student. Um, yeah, really, really didn't do well in school at all. Um, funny thing now is I, I love studying. I love reading. I teach, you know, all, all basically what I do is academics now. But yeah, as a student, hyper, wouldn't sit still, couldn't tell me, you know, what to do for nothing. <laughs> that was a terrible student. Yeah. Yes. That's funny. You mentioned that. I was, I was awful. C at best student. So I I'm finding there's a common theme. Those of us that have made the leap and, and are kind of entrepreneurs uh, at heart, right? There's, I was a terrible student and I was also a God awful employee. So here we are, mm. uh, you know, you had mentioned uh, some fix and flips and some properties along the way. Rob and I uh, have done a number of those. I, I think it's important for the audience because unless you were blessed and you, you have access to a, to a trust fund or you have access to capital, um, many of us go through that process of fix and flips, entitlements, because it's a pathway for us, right? So Rob and I have worked on these deals where um, we want the sustainable cash flow. We want the what I call mailbox money. But to get there, to have enough skin in the game, at least we felt to be taken seriously as we took that next step into the larger assets, that's how we cobbled the money together. Um, and I think that that's a fair part of everyone's journey. And, and Rob, if you want to spend a minute on it, uh, I, we, we've had a lot of fun during it. And I think we've learned quite a bit uh, during that process. Do you look back now and regret any of the properties we sold, Rob, or do you still look at it as kind of the bigger picture and it was a means to an end? No, I think it was, I think it was the right move at the time. Uh, and I think realistically, we probably would have sold, you know, shortly after regardless because of the way things were going. Yeah. So as you're going through these, these properties, folks, and you're starting to put money on the side, uh, Bill is the guy that actually took that next step and did it with a tremendous amount of success. So, uh, Bill, for those of us that are in that place, right, let's forget about the folks that are still trying to get off the couch. There's a bunch of us that are, are ready to go and, and we're looking to take that next step. Uh, where do you start? Like, where do you where do you start pulling it together? Yeah, first first thing is education. It's it's always going to be my answer to almost every question. It starts with the education. You know, the the I got to tell everybody the the only real estate deal you ever have to worry about closing is the six inches between your ears. You can close that deal. The rest of them don't matter. If you can't close that deal, the rest of them don't matter, right? So it's really starting about your mentality, your thought process. And your education and the education will lead to confidence and the education is, is almost your crutch to get to experience. You know, so if you're trying to transition into a larger asset class, you're probably going to be doing it with other people's money. You're going to be looking for investors. You're going to be looking for partners. You're going to be leveraging someone's capital. And that person is going to look at you and say, are you the right person? If you don't have a tremendous amount of experience, you had better have the education. You know, the education leads to the experience and everybody kind of feels like they have to have this big resume or nobody's going to take it seriously. That's not true. People will give you a shot and they will give you a break and they'll try out, you know, your first deal and things like that. But not if you sound like an idiot, not if you sound like you don't know what you're talking about. So, so take care of the, the cheap stuff first, get a book, 20 bucks, you know, then listen to some podcasts, Google, whatever. 
And then maybe you want to kind of start investing in a higher level of education, you know, so start off cheap, do all the cheap stuff, spend your hustle before you spend your dollars. Then you might want to start looking at maybe a higher level, you know, someone that can help you uh, move forward in the business and learn, you know, and, and it's, that's kind of the progression. Um, and then look at deals. You just got to look at a lot. I can tell everybody right here, the only two things you ever need to know about real estate Know the values in your area. Look at more deals than anybody else. So if you know what a good deal is and you look at a lot of deals, you're good. If you know what a good deal is, you never look at any, you're wasting your time. If you look at all the deals in the world, but you have no idea what you're looking at, you're wasting your time. So you got to really focus on that education and, and really learn what is a good deal? How do we find them? How do we work with realtors? How do we work with sellers? How do we do all these things to identify a good deal? It's obviously a lot easier said than done. And then you've got to rinse and repeat that process on a, on a regular basis. So real short answer would be start with your education and then just get out there and start looking at deals. Just It's free to look. It's free to analyze. It's free to do the math. You know, do that. And in evaluating what's a good deal, uh, right. everyone's got their own formula and their own metrics. You know, what what is a good deal to bill? Is it the cash on cash return? Is it the net dollars at the end of the day? What What is it that that constitutes a good deal for you? Yeah, again, broad answer. A good deal is, in my personal definition, a good deal is something that costs you more, that, that produces more money than it costs you to own, basically. You know, all right, so that kind of starts to break it down and say, well, what's a good deal? When somebody asks me that, I if, if they're asking generally, what is a good deal? I answer with a question, well, what is your cost of capital? So we got to look at like, what does your money cost? You know, if you own the money, then it's cheap. If you're going to a bank and getting 80%, well, then cost of 80% is the interest rate. Well, where's this other 20% coming from? Is that investors? Is it your money? You got to look at, you know, what all the money costs. If you're syndicating, it's about 80% with the interest rate, the other 20% is whatever your investors want. So I would say in that regard, a good deal is a deal that produces enough return to feed my investors the returns they want and have enough left over for me to be worth the, the effort, return on effort. So that's kind of the answer there is a good deal. Is, is it pay for itself? And, and does it cover the people that are going to help you get into the deal? And if it covers all those things and it's in a, a decent location and you can get a decent loan, I'd, I'd say that's a good deal. You know, um, I will now start going a little off track to the question. Yeah, it's not about cash flow. It's equity. If we want to have that old let's have cash flow equity conversation, you have to have both. First of all, I think when anybody starts arguing that, you know, appreciation is nice to have, I buy for cash flow, or no, I buy for appreciation, I don't worry about cash flow. You're both wrong. You're all crazy. Look, if you don't have cash flow, you're not going to stay in business. You got to have cash flow to take care of all the bad days and the things at the break and the things you didn't see coming. It covers all the bumps in the road. And if you don't have appreciation, you've never tried to exit a deal before. Anybody that tells you that they're not worried about appreciation is not somebody that's been full cycle on an asset. Because if you try to refinance a deal that has gone down in value, good luck to you. Give me a call. Let me know how that goes for you. You try and sell something that's gone down in value again. Good luck to you. Valuation and the appreciation has everything to do with the exit strategy. You must have both. Where we're jumping over a bunch of stuff in the timeline, but you're where I think uh, is the most important part for people today. I've been through a bunch of cycles. You've been through a bunch of cycles. Um, There is a time and a place, folks, believe it or not, where the banks don't lend, 
rates are not, even now with these little bumps, I, I find it hysterical. People are manic about what's happening with rates. This is still relatively cheap and free money. Like, you know, I was doing deals at 13%, right? There's, there's a, and there's a lot of runway left here, Bill. So for folks that are investing in deals today, we're seeing it dependent on a lot of liquidity events, uh, refinances, loss to lease, all of this upside. Like w- we're at a point in the market, and and I'll I'll stop at a certain point, and I want you to finish it. Then I'll share my thoughts. We're at a point in the market where what? What do you see happening next in in the multi multifamily space? Big shift. Yeah. Big shift. I, I don't want to use the word crash because I'm not quite sure. I'm I'm feeling a crash. Correction, absolutely, yes. Um, I, I think a lot of things in this, we could spend another hour just sort of answering that one question of what do I think is about to happen. But short answer is I, I think that we have a debt service ratio problem yep. in the world. I, I think that um, a lot of people are going to become distressed sellers if they got short-term loans, the loan comes due, they did not get the revenue up to where it needs to be for them to get the price they want to get. I think that's going to be a problem. And that's what I always tell everybody. That's the greatest thing about multifamily is like, hey, if you go and buy a property this afternoon and you go get a five or a seven year mortgage and the values crash tomorrow, you know what? Just don't sell. Who cares? Cash flow, keep going. You're great. Right. You go get a two year mortgage and that thing comes due and you're 18 months into a two year mortgage and you got that mortgage at three and a quarter percent. And now you're going to have to exit at six and a half to get yeah, you're in trouble. You're in a lot yeah. of trouble. So that's where I kind of think that a lot of short that a lot of people have gone out and gotten short term loans because that was the only way they could justify the price they were paying. And they got short term interest only loans and they have raised the rents. But then the feds just raised the rates. And so now you're kind of still on par and you want to sell and there you're going to have a debt service ratio problem. Your 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 revenue is not going to be high enough to get you the price that you want. And that's going to cause that's going to be good and bad. I think it's going to be bad for some owners. And I think it's going to be a great opportunity for a lot of people that are getting into the business to capitalize on a shift in the market. But, yeah, lending's tightening up. And I think that's going to kind of. Um, you know, that's going to expose some of the people that are over leveraged and, and can't operate. I also believe and this is why I wrote the book, Creative Cash, that we're about to see a, a wave of, of uh, creative financing on the way that's going to kind of infill a lot of where the lenders, the traditional lenders retreat and that we'll use a lot of creativity in that market space. But that's what I truly think. And that's why I wrote the book, Creative Cash, which is on Amazon. Check it out. <laughs> Selfless plug. So, Bill, now, how long have you been uh, in the space, the more sizable stuff? About 12 years now, 10 years, a little over 10 years now. So you've seen a huge shift already. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if, if you look at, really, without getting way off into the, the financial weeds, just look at the monetary policy. If you kind of look at cap rates over the last 20 years, the cap rates have been on the decline for about 20 years. They did kind of rise a little bit in the 08 cycle and then back down, but we've had pretty easy monetary policy for those 20 years. And so now if they you know, severely tighten up the monetary policy, I'm curious to see what, what that does because this market has been, um, I think, on a sugar high for at least three years, four years now. And now I think the economy is also on a financial sugar high. But 
uh, you know, whatever. Hey, I've look, I've been here 17 years. You've been here. I don't know how long James you've seen markets. I've seen markets at the end of the day. This is all just chit chat. It doesn't matter. If you get a good piece of real estate in a good location and you know what you're doing, you know how to analyze the deal. None of this matters. None of this matters. Just get in, get a good piece of real estate, get a decent mortgage, learn how to underwrite deals. This is all irrelevant. I'm telling you, I've been here 17 years and over 17 years, the only thing I can say is I didn't buy enough. Yeah. No matter what the market cycle was, I didn't buy enough. I wish I had more. Yeah. So uh, without a doubt, look, the, the, the worst markets is where we found the greatest opportunity. Yeah. Right. So I've been through two of them now. Um, and they're always uncomfortable, no matter how much you hedge and how much you prepare, they're always uncomfortable. But uh, if you're balanced and measured, you know, Bill's 100% right, there's just opportunity out there and, and you still act. You know, Bill, I would argue that there's been creative financing um, already in the marketplace. It feels like the, the big institutional banks have been really reserved uh in and not jumping in where in the past they they would have so we've seen the emergence of these opportunity funds equity funds lever whatever you want to call them and the small banks have filled a lot of that void and they've done really well for a couple of years but i believe that there is a whole mess of notes that are going to come due in the next 12 to call it 30 months where uh, there's, you know, inflation is running rampant. And if you're in the multifamily space, folks, that's a great thing because you could recast your rents for the most part if you're not stabilized, you're not controlled at the end of every year. So multifamily is one of those asset classes where in an inflationary period, you want to be heavy because you do have the ability to enjoy that upside. But if you didn't arrange for financing that allows you to get to what I call the other side of the rainbow, there's a world of hurt coming. So what policies do you see or what creative financing do you see is going to enter the market over the next however long you think it's going to be? Yeah, I, I think we're going to go from the flipper market, speculator market into an operator market where operations will be rewarded far more than they have been over the last three to five years. Uh, where flipping and the quick cash and the 18 month hold and you made a few million bucks for no good reason kind of market is going to cool off and we're going to see who can really operate. Uh, that's kind of what I see. First answer. Second answer. Yeah, I think seller financing and lease options are going to be the hallmark of, of creative financing. Uh, you're going to see a lot of lease options with people that uh, are sellers that got long-term debt. They did go out get the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, but now they're into a 10-year mortgage and they've got massive prepayment penalties, defeasance, yield maintenance. They can't exit mm -hmm. without paying off this giant loan and they need someone to assume the mortgage. But you don't really want to assume the mortgage because, you know, the loan assumption is going to be bad or the property's not in good shape, whatever. Lease option, master lease option is going to be that. That's, you know, in a nutshell, you're going to go and rent that property with the right to buy it someday in the future at a set price. And then hopefully you bring the, the operations and the valuation up. I've done a lot of those. Uh, and then if, if someone has full equity, they actually own the, some equity in the property, you'll be looking at seller financing um, with that one. Uh, outside of that, and those are the two positive ones that I come up with. The third one, always got to throw in a negative one because that's me, but uh, equity right now. I think you're going to see some LPs lose some money. I think you're going to see some investors get some of their investment money written down. Yep. Those are the three things I think you're going to see. Two, two creative financing and one, some people are going to lose some cash. 
my opinion. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I, I, I think that there's no question about it, that that has to happen in this next iteration. So we just had a meeting on this this morning, Bill. Where do you start? Right. Do we do we start courting lenders now that are heavy in the multifamily space? Where, where do you start if you want to be in the right position to take advantage of what's coming around the corner? Yeah, I would say that really probably depends on what size asset we're talking about. If we're under 50 units, I always kind of split the world in 50 units and above and 50 units and below. If we're below 50 units, you're better off trying to go directly to owners. You're better off trying to set up direct mail, contact, voiceless, ringless uh, voicemail, you know, text, email, whatever these kids are doing today, right? You know, no, uh, get out and do some direct uh, contact campaigns for under 50 units. Start tracking those people. Uh, That's kind of building relationships with sellers. Uh, If you're 50 units and above, it's really about building relationships with realtors. You can try the lender thing. They're likely to not really talk to you, not on the higher level. They're going to just refer you to back to a realtor. They're just, that doesn't work as well as the gurus tell you that it does. You know, this whole contact the bank that where where that came from was back in 08. And and I, I had, I used to teach that and we used to do that back in 08 where you could actually call up asset managers back in that foreclosure crisis. And yeah, asset managers would actually talk to you and basically sell you property right off the bank's ledger. They largely, largely, largely got away from all that and almost never do that anymore. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying it's highly improbable. You're going to pick up the phone, strike up a relationship with a lender and go picking up deals from them, unless it's more of like a private lender. If it's any kind of bank or institutional lender, realtors are the way to go. Now, the realtors are the ones that they get these properties in receivership. They're the ones that the bank calls up and says, hey, come over and give me uh, your opinion on value, this kind of stuff. So that's where I would start really working on is relationships with with realtors over 50 units go directly to owners under 50 units. Uh, Those are the two things that I would say. Third, if you can track the data, this is a little bit higher level, but you would need something like CoStar or some other ability. But if you can track loan maturity in the market, I think that's going to be killer data. If you can sit there and watch people's loans maturing and go, all right, I see, you know, one, two, three main street looks like they got about 18 months left. You know, this one over here, yeah, they're about two years. And you start a, a track of, of loan maturities in your market. You're, you're, you're building yourself a motivated sellers list. And, and that's what I would recommend everybody do easier said that. than done, but you can get the data. So Bill, if I may, so I, first of all, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. I think that makes like, the seller financing. I think you're going to see a lot of that. I completely agree. That's awesome advice. So if I may, you had mentioned that you have been selling off a lot. Yeah. So yeah, I have been, yeah. Has that, was that just part of the initial business plan or you just feel like the numbers are at a peak and you know, it just made sense. All the above. Yeah. I mean, basic comment, nobody ever went broke cash and checks, right? So <laughs> I'm cash and checks. You yeah, know, we, okay. we bought the properties. Um, some of them were a long, one was a, meant to be a long-term hold and I've owned it for almost 11 years now. Uh, great equity in that deal. A lot of equity pay down, a lot of appreciation, big cash equity there. Um, one of the other ones that we sold recently, we owned for about 18 months. And somebody just walked up and knocked on the door and said, hey, we'll pay you a whole lot of money for your real estate. And we said, well, we'll sell it to you for a whole lot of money. And we did. And then um, the third one, we all kind of partners and I looked around and said, hey, I probably just get a little bit older. Rates are going up. We can go out and do all these repairs and maintenance. But, you know, that may be a net wash if the rates go up. Why don't we do this? I said, you guys are thinking about selling. Let me call a few of my realtors. I said, we won't list it. We won't even put out publicly. I'll call 
five of my top realtors. And I said, I bet you I can get one of them to bring us an offer. We got five offers, one of them we've accepted. So that's one of the reasons that I tell people, if you really want to get into the commercial space, again, anything over about 50 units, relationships, realtors, it's sure. not an easy thing, but it's the answer. Yeah, because like, here's a, here's a great example. I called up a handful of realtors. They went out to their immediate list of buyers. If you weren't on that list, you didn't get the phone call. Yeah, it was not a public deal. It was not on LoopNet. You were never going to see mm-hmm. that. You know, you either had that relationship with that realtor, you got the phone call, or you didn't. Period. Yep. So that's why it's, it's relationships with realtors. Yeah. So the, the, the next challenge, you know, you're you're down in Atlanta still, right? Correct. All right. So well, at the moment, I'm at the beach, but yes, other than <laughs> at the moment, uh, for a few months, I am. At- so up here in New York, uh, for the most part, it, everything is priced out. It just doesn't make a damn bit of sense to to even think about the multifamily market for a number of reasons. Pricing is one of them, but legislative risks. Um, you know, we have seen so many uh, just really difficult, well-intended, okay, but really difficult policies uh, come down the pipe from from city council and and the mayor's office, even Albany, uh, that has made it tough. To, to reason why uh, we would continue to invest here. So we're faced with this challenge of, we know the market intimately, right? I mean, we know every nook and cranny here, but it just doesn't pay anymore. So when identifying uh, other markets, what are some of the things you look for? Or are you just investing in your backyard? Well, no, I invest wherever a deal makes sense. Um, I would say short answer would be population growth. That's probably always your number one answer is, is go where the people are moving. So if you're in a state that in, in Census Bureau, by the way, is one of the, the best quick places to get the data. But look at your, your general population. I think census came out, what, 2021? So it's not that old. But if your state had level or negative population growth, be careful because you're probably going to have stagnant rent. Because if, if you're not having population growth, you're going to have a supply and demand problem. And yeah, you might look out the front door right now and go, gosh, the rents went up, but they won't for forever if your population is flat or negative. And that's there's a lot of sort of the northeastern corridors from Chicago to New York kind of either lost, ran flat or kind of held in population, but didn't incline much. So I would be looking for population growth. First comment. Second comment yeah, there is the politics. There is. But, um, you know, I, again, we could go into a, a long conversation about this, but I think that regardless of whether a state or a city is landlord or tenant friendly, I think the politics are going to move in the direction of New York on all older buildings. You are going to see politicians and cities get liberal. I don't care where you live in the middle of Dallas, Texas. I don't care. You're going to see politicians get liberal when it comes to older buildings, the conditions that those tenants are living in, and your responsibility to that building. They're, the city's going to come after you. The, you know, the, they're going to look at you. They're going to say, you need to maintain that building. And that's exactly what they're doing to you all in New York. They're saying, hey, you need to maintain the building. And you're, you're looking around going, yeah, but I can't get the revenue high enough, the rent's high enough to justify the repairs that need to be done. That is a valid argument, just not to code enforcement because they don't care. That's not their department. And that's where I think that even in a landlord friendly city, you're not going to get a, a slumlord free card. You don't get to come down to Atlanta or to some other you know, uh, you know, a landlord centric area 
and mistreat tenants and run a property into the ground and think that that city is not going to come after you for it. That's New York. That's L.A. That's anywhere. So be careful with that. Don't think you're going to be a slumlord and that's going to be free. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm not implying, uh, uh, certainly not implying be a slumlord or not take care of the building. Uh, the, the, the type of legislation that we're talking about that we're seeing now is when there's a wholesale crossing uh, onto the other side of tenant rights. Good cause eviction, for example, right, right? where um, essentially outside of, you know, a, a real heavy lift. If you have a tenant that, you know, is a tenant that's been a good tenant and you didn't raise them for years and and now, you know, they move on and, and the kids have the apartment you want to recast to market rent. Nope, can't do that anymore. Right. Those are the kinds of things where um, we're finding it's just become too much of a of a challenge. There's just so many tenant rights that, you know, I had an eviction in Pennsylvania. The sheriff gave him a notice they were out in 14 days. 14. I have an eviction in New York that's going on 13 months. Right. You know, th those are the kinds of things where I think that there's just uh, it's become too much of a challenge and too expensive. Uh, and we're now seeing population swing the other way. I mean, that that's real, Bill, like folks are, are up and out of here uh, in a very real palpable way. So uh, I've, I was thinking more along the lines of those types of restrictions. Now, on those older buildings that you were referencing, just to go back to them for a minute, is that a no go for you now? Are you staying away from older buildings? I, I am. Yeah. For, for exactly the same reasons you and I are talking about is is I think they're going to they're going to be too expensive to repair. The prices are too high. So you've got a cost basis problem. I think the governments, local and, you know, uh, out of state are all going to move liberal towards protecting tenants and protecting the, the people living in those buildings, which is I'm not arguing a bad thing at all. I'm just saying I think that's what's going to occur. And I think the financial model is going to be what you've come to realize in New York. There's no money in that. I mean, there's just no money in this. The building's old. I got to replace all the plumbing. I got to replace all the roofs. I got to pay this price. And then I got the city that says I can only do this. And I can only raise rents. It's exactly what's going to happen in New York. You're going to see the value collapse. There's just no point in it. Just don't buy the real estate. Just don't. Just go, go play golf. Go do something else. Go buy in some other state. You know, let the market speak. This is a free country. You don't like the price, don't pay it. Simple yeah, as that. Then when the market crashes, then you can look at your politicians and go, hey, you did it. Now look at me. So, Bill, how does your what's your approach look like now versus the past? So now as you're, rinse, you know, you're doing the rinse and repeat, you're looking for new assets. What you know, what have you learned? The biggest things, you know, are you looking for specific markets? Are you getting a lot pickier on, you know, buildings after eight, 1980 or 90? Like, how, do, how does that happen as you put yeah, those together? Newer, you know? newer buildings, right. But I'll, I'll answer that question in sort of something that's been, I think, a little bit of an undertone here and that I've kind of circled around with, with you, James, a little bit. It ain't about that cash flow, man. Don't worry about that. It's not the cash flow. Cash flow is great. Yes, you have to have cash flow, keeps lights on, you know, runs business great, whatever. Nobody's getting rich on cash flow. That's the number one thing I've learned in real estate over 17 years is that you will make a living on cash flow. You'll get wealthy on appreciation. And appreciation has everything to do with the exit strategy. So the number one thing you got to be paying attention to in real estate is the exit strategy. Everybody thinks it's about buying real estate, closing deals. That's nonsense. You know, that goes along with the same comment, you make money when you buy. Also, a complete nonsense comment. You know, if you, if you sit here and say, oh, you make money when you buy. Interesting. Yeah, why, why is anybody even listening to us? 
we're we're worthless. Just go buy real estate. All you got to do is close. You'll make money. Why are you listening to us? You don't need to know anything, right? If it was that easy, go, go ahead and see how that works out for you. Just go buy anything and see. You don't exit. You don't make money. You make money not when you buy, but when you exit and the check clears the account, then you've made money. Ask anybody that went into foreclosure if they've made money. How do I know? It's not how that works. And so by saying you make money when you buy, you're you're throwing exit strategy to the wind and you're saying exit strategy has no value here. And that, I tell you, is a ridiculous comment. You won't be in business long if you don't understand how valuable exit strategy is. So that's what I've come to realize is that over the 17 years, everybody out here is talking about cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Yeah, that's because you want to quit a job. That's a sales pitch. Gurus sell you that concept. Yeah. You know, cash flow will get you out of the job. Equity will keep you there. <clears throat> You know, and if you don't have equity, you, you're not going to make it long term. So where is equity? And in those old junky old buildings in those tough neighborhoods that struggle to cash flow with the city coming down on you and the tenants that are hard to deal with. That's what I've learned is just quality buildings and a quality location that is timeless. You are all but guaranteed to make money in that. And that's why I kind of tell everybody at the end of the day, just buy decent real estate in a de- decent location none of this matters. Everything we talked about is out the window as long as you can do that. That is easier said than done. I agree. But if you can buy a decent property, a decent location, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> be good. Well, we feel like there's been a, a craze here for maybe the last two years, maybe I'd say two years with, you know, I call them the TikTok investors where they're buying payments, right? They're not looking at those other factors they're taking short-term debt, they're buying payments, and they're taking a lot of people's money to invest into these deals. Uh, and they're looking at, hey, here's what we're going to net year one, here's what we're netting year two, here's what we're net, And they're not paying attention to some of those other metrics. So you, you believe that there's a day of reckoning coming for those folks as well, right? I do. I, I, I do. And I think some people will be okay. I think some people might lose some money. Um, but, you know, all in all, again, I really, at the end of the day, don't think that matters. Uh, you know, I've, I've lost money. I've, I've had deals go bad. I'm, I'm still here. It, again, it's all about the six inches between your ears. You know, it's how you tolerate failure. It's how you tolerate market cycles. But, but to say that, you know, you're going to get into the market and out of the market and successfully or not. Look, it's always Tuesday. You know, it's always some kind of market cycle. It's always some kind of something. It's always up. It's always down. It's always, who cares? Just get started get into the business, get an education, learn what you're doing. And you're going to be here for the long haul. You're going to be like James here and myself. You've been through market cycles. It's not that big of a deal. It's always something. Just get started, you know, and learn and get going. You'll be fine. Don't worry about this stuff. So, so could you spend a few minutes talking about real estate raw? Um, I, I think that it's a great place for folks to consider starting. Uh, I went and I, I, I logged on. I took a, a couple of the classes there. You've got a real different approach, a real neat approach. Can you can you talk to the audience about what that's about Absolutely. there? Yep. So um, realestateraw.com is, is the website and that uh, is sort of my education branch. Um, I've been teaching through different programs for about 10 years or so. I've had hundreds of students so realestateraw.com is sort of the education branch. If you know you want to get more information on some of the programs we have, you can go there. Um, yeah, and, and that is really just me uh, working with people individually, helping them build out their businesses. So if, if you're new to the business or you're looking to get in and you need some guidance, 
that's what that is. You know, that's, that's handholding and teaching you how to build a business from my 17 years of experience working with me directly. Um, I have two books, uh, one also called Real Estate Raw. That's on Amazon. And the other one, Creative Cash, that is one that brought out about uh, two years ago or so, and that is on creative financing. So uh, Real Estate Raw, the book is How to Build a Portfolio. Creative Cash is the book on how to get that portfolio funded using uh, creative financing. And then Real Estate Raw, the website, uh, you know, come over there and check us out. Yeah, I've, I've helped a lot of people get into the business. And, uh, you know, I always tell everybody, you're, you're going to learn one way or the other. You're going you're gonna to pay for the, You're going to pay for an education one way or the other, either through me or out on the street. Or, you know, you're going to hire somebody. You're going to learn on the street. Fine yeah. with me either way, but you will pay. It's just where and how much. <laughs> Without a doubt. So before I let you go, Bill, um, sure. If you could spend a minute or two talking about scale, I, I know that you uh, own yeah. and operate or still own and operate a management company uh, for the assets. So uh, a minute or two on scale sure. and at what point, how important is it to self-manage and have that company set up? Um, I always tell everybody, I think you should manage and then not manage and then manage again. Right. So I think you should manage in the beginning when you have a small portfolio, few houses, couple duplexes, and stuff like that to learn. But without scale, without economy of scale, you're going to start wearing a lot of hats. And you, what's going to happen is you're going to get in the weeds of building a management company. And yes, that will be money that you collect every month. It's W-2 money, all that. But it is going to come at an opportunity cost that may slow down the asset purchasing. So that's where I say, I think you should jump in there and manage for a little while, to learn. And then I think you should outsource to third party until you have probably at least a couple hundred units in a, in a city. And then when you can hire some bench talent, you come back in and take in the in-house. Now you're, you've got enough money and enough economy of scale. You can actually hire some folks to know what they're doing. I did not do that. I took none of that advice, none of that. Started with a duplex, managed my way all the way up. And it was great. I really learned a lot but I saw a lot of other people close a lot of other deals in the same amount of time. It, it slowed me down. So it's good. And it's bad. I, I, it is not for everybody. It is not free money. That's one thing I want everybody to take away with. Don't think you're just going to go lateral, open up a management company, out of being mailbox money. No, 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 no. That is brain damage money. That's hard job. That's hard work. Be very conscious oh, yeah. into that business before you do it. Uh, you know, it's great. It's good, but it's not easy. Yeah. So look, some tremendous insight and information today, Bill. I love the, the straight on approach. Um, you say a lot of things that other folks dance around and they don't come quite you know, square and say. And I think in real estate where the stakes are as high as they are, you need that, that kind of candid, straightforward, direct approach. So You can get hurt. You can get, get hurt out here. Yeah, yeah, you, you can. It's not as easy as everybody is making it look on on social media now. And and there are some really difficult um, stories. In 2008, we sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in defaulted notes. Yeah. And there were some good folks on the other side of those notes and some not so good folks. Right. You know, depending on who and where. Yeah. Uh, but just be careful out there, folks. Make sure you're choosing your syndicators wisely. So, yeah. LPGP, right? Like, has that been the model that you've used? You know, have you pretty traditional? Not when I first got started. I did my first 402 units with only creative financing. 
lease options, seller financing, line of credit, credit card, you know, what the hell ever. But uh, then after that, yeah, I got into GPLP syndicated model. Yeah. And that's what I do. So, so now that you're, you've done this for years, you've owned a lot of different stuff, right? So what's your opinion on scale from the standpoint of, Hey, would you rather, you know, I don't know, you know, which, which one of your partners you do steady deals with, you know, are you in the, you know, in the mindset of, you know what, should we just own some stuff ourselves, you know, and not raise money? Or is it the opposite? I want to scale on a much larger level and raise it all. I'm curious what. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I would, uh, I kind of look at it like the diamond model, right? So I'm, I'm starting off and I'm, I'm going to syndicate and use everybody's money that I can build up that equity and then pay off and have a small portfolio. Because I'm saying, so I'm going to go wide and then narrow. So a uh, hundred units with a mortgage or 10 units free and clear, about the same equity, about the same cash flow. Yeah. But to get the 10 units free and clear, you might have needed to syndicate the hundred. You know what I mean? So yeah, I'm, I'm going out as wide and big as I can to get as many assets appreciating as possible so that when I have those exits, I can eventually, to your point, burn off the, the partners and the LPs and all that crap. And then have that equity. That's a longer term business model. That, that takes some years to pull that off. But yeah, that's the idea. Then, I'm so I'm figuring about halfway through. So, you know, why not? Okay. And then last question, minimum investment size. Do you, you know, like I know some guys that are like, don't get anything under a hundred thousand or under two fifty. That's like it. then I have the opposite guys that are like, no, do the, you know, take everything. Like what's your opinion on that? I mean, okay. I think the, the bigger dollars are better. If you, if you, that's irrelevant comment, basically what both of those comments are irrelevant until you stop and look at your own database and say, can I take that advice? You should only raise money for millionaires. Yeah, sure. I agree. Do you, do you got some millionaires laying around? Go, go ahead. If you don't, that's a bullshit comment, isn't it? So it really has to do with you looking at your, your own network and saying, can I take that advice? Yes, I agree. Get a million dollars out of every individual. You'll, you'll have big fish and it'll be awesome and all that kind of good stuff. That might not be functional comment for you to really accept. So you you got to kind of apply it where you can apply it. Um, our minimum is usually about 50000 to get in, depending on the size deal, depending on how much the raise is, depending on what we're doing, I might bump that up to a hundred, but that's if it's a big deal. And I feel like I've really got the the Rolodex to bring those folks in. You know, if you're out uh, what I call millionaire panhandling, right? If you're out, spare 50 grand, spare hundred grand, spare 50 grand, you know, you're, you're out panhandling for a million bucks. You're going to take what you can get. Yep. And if you're about two weeks before closing and you're out, you hadn't raised your money and your earnest money's on the line, you're going to damn sure take everything. You know? right. So this so, was okay. those are nice this was, comments, but yeah, I don't know how effective they really are. You know, those, yeah. this is really good stuff. Definitely give Bill a shot. Go check out the site. Uh, Bill Ham, Broadwell Property Group and Real Estate Raw. Bill, I really appreciate the time today, man. This hey, is good pleasure. stuff. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Take As care. always, everyone out there, please stay safe. Thank you.